Welcome back to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkoff, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. On Sunday evening, Donald Trump tweeted the stupidest thing ever. (laughs) I can't even intro it. He tweeted, nobody could have done what I've done for hashtag Puerto Rico with so little appreciation. So much work! Exclamation point. And then played this video, which we can only play some of the moody music from. Let's describe this scene. It's This is an <laughs> almost nine-minute video showing disaster relief. It's such relief. a long video. It's very long. It shows all these disaster relief people. It shows, like, helicopters, like, picking up a box, and then, like, a guy handing a water pack, like a and, pack of waters to another guy. And Puerto Ricans talking about what, you know, what the devastation, what the effects are like. And there, you see FEMA, you see the Red Cross, and they're thanking, like, the Red Cross for their their service. They're not, they're not thanking Donald Trump. Donald Trump doesn't even appear in the video until, like, minute eight, like, for the last 48 seconds. And then when he does appear in the video, he stares into space. While he's at a conference, he gives a salute in slow motion. He holds a can of tuna. And this is in the scene where he was, like, throwing stuff at Puerto Ricans. He was, like, throwing, throwing paper, paper towels. towels. <laughs> but then in this in this frame, he's just holding a can of tuna. He does not give it to anybody. He's just holding it. And then he smiles at somebody. And, like... <laughs> And he's like, no, this is a video of me doing things. This is, it's incredible. He so predictably turns everything into something. Like, it's everything is a statement about himself. So Puerto Rico is now about how much he has done or not done to help Puerto Rico. Yeah. And that is the significance of what's happening in Puerto Rico. The definition to Donald of, Trump. I mean, like, if I watched a video of other people and I said, look, that's me in that video, I would be held back from first grade. Like, I would be held in kindergarten. That's, like, such a basic comprehension fuck-up. <laughs> like, Speak, Speaking of comprehension fuck-ups, can we talk for a second or listen to how he said Puerto Rico when talking to Puerto Ricans? We are also praying for the people of Puerto Rico. We love Puerto Rico. It's just, like, offensive and, like, it's, like, auditory <laughs> harassment. I <laughs> am so grossed out by this. Ugh. Later in the episode, we're going to talk about gun violence and mass shootings with Lois Beckett, a senior reporter at The Guardian covering gun policy, criminal justice, and the far right in the United States. The sort of big critique here is you have to understand, like, state violence and state failure in America, not just the access to guns. But first— our week in weenies. Wow, it's been such a good week for weenies. There have been too many. For men and the weenies that they have. <laughs> it's, it's like so many so many men have been like toppled by sexual harassment allegations and this week. on the flip side, it's been a, I've been acutely aware of my gender this Eesh, week. <laughs> definitely. I mean, it's, it's hard to be, it's hard to forget. Okay, our first weenie is... Jeff Sessions, who, I mean, he's a, he's definitely a Hall of Famer. I hate bringing him up. He just keeps doing stuff. At I think this he, point, we could have our own Jeff Sessions dick spinoff podcast. Yeah, we like. definitely could. Okay, what he did 
it does feel like he's he like loves Big Time Dicks the podcast so much that he's just doing more and more stuff to like get on it. But on Thursday, he announced that he was reversing a policy that protects transgender employees from workplace discrimination, which is like, well, he announced this in a memo, which was obtained by BuzzFeed News. And it reads, Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination encompasses discrimination between men and women, but does not encompass discrimination based on gender identity per se, including transgender status. So it's basically, I mean, if your side is shrinking, like, the bounds of what anti-discrimination laws protect, you like, you're on the wrong side. You, like, he's really being like, yes, please discriminate against these people. Like, I don't know how you can pitch this to be, like, well, and the, a on the, moral thing. And the flip side is that this administration is so concerned about the corporations being discriminated against. It's like— Yeah, and they're also obsessed like, with, like, freedom of speech right. and freedom of choice and, like, freedom of the market. They're, like, so obsessed with freedom except— I mean, I guess they're also obsessed with, like, the freedom to discriminate against people. Right. The freedom to be trans is eclipsed by their argument is religious freedom. But what religious freedom? It's like, yes, but like, what is that religious? A very narrow interpretation of Christianity, like, is basically what it is. Is that a Christian thing, even? I don't. You're asking the wrong person. I mean, I I mean, neither of us can really, like, weigh in on this, but I think it's not. (laughs) There's no, like, Christian passage that's, like, and then God said, I don't believe in trans people. Yeah. I don't think that's okay. I don't. <laughs> pretty sure that's not in the Bible. Yeah, I'm pretty Not sh- an expert, but I'm going to say. I'm pretty I sure I don't think not. that's in the Bible. <laughs> um, we actually covered trans rights and the bathroom bill back, all the way back in our fourth episode. We talked to ACLU lawyer Joshua Block about Gavin Grimm, the student who was fighting for trans rights at a high school in Virginia. And also, that case never even went to the Supreme Court, even though it was going to when we recorded the episode. So go listen to that. It was our fourth episode, like, 10,000 years ago. Back when Joanna and I were babies. Yeah, we were. Podcast babies. We were minors. (laughs) All right, our next weenie is Pennsylvania Representative Tim Murphy. He's from my home state. Oh. Yeah. And he's such a hypocrite. It's just like a perfect little nugget of a story. It it really is because, okay, so Tim Murphy, one of the most important things about him in his legislative record is is how anti-abortion he is. He's a member of the House Pro-Life Caucus. He's been endorsed by anti-abortion group Life Pack. Um, And... The Family Research Council, which is this horribly, like, far-right, anti-pro-choice, anti-everything, anti-people, anti-human rights group. They host the Values Voter Conference, which I've been to two years in a row. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't know why. I'm so sorry, (laughs) And it's just, like, a celebration of, like, all (laughs) all of the most bigoted stances. It's, like, a lot of HGTV stars go on It's a cornucopia of bigotry. Definitely. (laughs) So Tim Murphy, this past week, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reported that, surprise, Tim Murphy had a mistress and he actually like wanted her to get an abortion. She was pregnant. He didn't want his constituents to find out in this, like this scandal and urged her to get an abortion. And so now he's resigning 
But that's actually not the full reason of why he's resigning. So his last day will be October 21st. But the other news that broke, Politico reported rampant abuse in his office, verbal harassment and intimidation, and interviewed several former staffers who called it a culture of abuse. And Republican leaders were apparently like so nervous that this was going to come out in an investigation into his office and particularly um, his chief of staff's salary that they urged him to resign. So Tim Murphy got a lot of got a lot of shit going on. I mean, this is like maybe a generalization, but I really assume that all these people who are so anti-abortion. I mean, this is not true of everybody, but I think specifically like the kind of like craven nail politicians, these people who are so anti-abortion, like if they were cheating on their wife and like the person they were cheating on their wife with got pregnant, like they're not going to be like, no, have it. I will support this child. (laughs) A hundred percent. I mean, how many abortions do you think that Donald Trump has funded in his (laughs) life? I I don't want to guess, but I do want to assume it's more than zero. (laughs) Significantly more than zero. I would also wager that. Well, let's move quickly on that. So on Friday, the Trump administration was like, okay, you can't have abortions, but also you can't have birth control. So the New York Times reports that there were twin actions issued by the Department of Health and Human Services and the Justice Department, which um, seek to protect companies' religious freedom to deny their employees insurance subsidized birth control. So what are we supposed to do with this? Now employers are free to deny women insurance coverage for contraception. Based on their religious or moral beliefs, which— That women should not have birth control a medicine. The GOP, they're so like, um, women, don't get abortions because— Babies are precious, but they're also like, don't even get pregnant. But then they're also like, you can't even have birth control. So they're like, get pregnant. So really what they want is for women to be baby makers all the time. But then they also sexually harass. harass. And they like, okay, so many Republicans are also avowed sexual harassers. Not every Republican. Here's the thing. Joanna, the bottom (laughs) half of the woman is for reproduction. The top half is for harassment. This is, we all, we all know this to be true. You're right. Do you know how like there are those pictures of cows that like show what meat (laughs) is for what cut? Yeah. It's like, this is a skirt steak. Exactly. We could do that with a woman. (laughs) That's exactly what. (laughs) Nice. And then I also just want to mention a weenie, but I don't want to give him a lot of like airtime is Milo Yiannopoulos. There is an incredibly disturbing article from BuzzFeed's um, Joseph Bernstein about how Breitbart and Milo Yiannopoulos, it's called Here's How Breitbart and Milo Smuggled Nazi and White Nationalist Ideas into the Mainstream. Joanna, I think you mean Nazi. (laughs) The Nazis. You're right, I do. (laughs) And Nazis. Um, And this article is, it's just very disturbing because it looks at a bunch of emails that Milo received and sent. And a lot of them are from people that you would not expect to send emails to Milo, who is a disgusting excuse for a human. A lot of people in like the mainstream media, people who you wouldn't think wanted to. Um, a male editor at, at Broadly, which was is Vice's feminist vertical. Yeah. And a lot of other people who 
are just not, like, avowed alt-writers. They're just, like, writers on the internet. I would like to point out, though, that all of them were white men. That's true. I mean, yeah, I think it's just um, a fascinating article, and it really encourages us to remember that these, like, alt-righty white supremacist people, or at least their sympathizers, which is, like, arguably the exact same thing, are not foreign to us. They're everywhere. They're, like, your friends. They're your neighbors. They're your podcast co-hosts. It's like, I feel like (laughs) Haley Joel Osment when in, like, The Sixth Sense where he's like, I see dead people. I see white supremacists. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Now, finally, other That's people are starting every, to believe me. Everybody that they are else should say everywhere. that too. They're everywhere. <laughs> they really are everywhere. I encourage everybody to read it. That's all we're going to say about that here because I can't bear to think about it anymore. And now our dick of the week, guns and the Republicans who love them. And joining us to talk about that is Lois Beckett, a senior reporter at The Guardian covering gun policy, criminal justice, and the far right in the United States. Lois, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. We're going to start super basic. How do you define a mass shooting? I think the problem with our whole discussion around mass shootings is that actually it's defined as like a shooting horrible enough that people pay attention to it. And so everything else sort of works backwards from there. There's definitions that a mass shooting is any shooting in which four or more people are shot in a single incident. And by that count, there are more than one a day. Uh, And that stat is shared all the time. Oh, there's more than one mass shooting a day in America. But if you actually look at those shootings, a lot of them aren't like Las Vegas or Orlando or Newtown. Um, They're more like the everyday violence and the kinds of weapons and the reasons for them. Um, They're domestic violence. They're everyday shootings in neighborhoods that have been burdened by violence for a long time. Um, And so there's this way in which the fact that Americans only care about the tiniest fraction of people dying from guns in America uh, means that people have worked backwards to redefine the rest of the violence so that people will care about it. Um, so there's a lot of debate over these numbers, and is it right to say that there's a mass shooting every day or not? And it's just a political choice, but the underlying problem is that people don't care about most of the people dying. And one of the things that we see is that mass shootings are the things that get coverage. Like when there's a report of a mass shooting, everybody's going to cover it, but they're not going to cover like an instance of domestic violence where like a family is shot or something like that. Why do you think that is? And can you give us a fuller picture of gun violence that at least you see? I think, and I've been writing about this for like five years, so it sort of settled with me. Like there's something really weird and puritanical about Americans and what kind of empathy they have. And not to say that Americans aren't in a lot of ways like extremely generous. Like look at all the people who lined up to give blood after Las Vegas. When something touches people, they really want to help and they really want to give back and they really want to try to make other people safer. But like there's certain things that you need. You need to be able to empathize with the person or the people who are getting shot. And like that empathy turns out to be really narrow. So it turns out 
mass shootings are things that happen in public places. And there's this real strong emphasis on, oh, the victims were innocent. Like, they had to have been strangers. They had to have been just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then we'll say, oh, that could have been me. Versus, like, domestic violence, where your partner turns on you and your friends. Actually, like, that could be you, too. But we don't talk about it like that. We don't think about it like that. Or suicide. There's so much shame around uh, mental health and so much shame around suicide. People don't talk about that. Even though, actually, if you look at the 33,000, 36,000 gun deaths a year, 20,000 or more of them every are suicide. So like 60 people a day or more are dying from suicide. That's our biggest problem. Like if we wanted to save the most people, that's what we'd focus on. But actually, we don't talk about that a lot because people are confused and think that suicide's not preventable or just are ashamed about talking about these people as victims. If you look at murders in America, a lot of them are clustered in like neighborhoods where there is incredible deprivation and like lack of jobs and poverty. And again, People don't talk about that unless to use it as a rebuke, unless to say, you know, well, most shootings are just people who are criminals anyway, so gun control doesn't matter. Well, yeah, so you've been tweeting a lot about how people are like, but what about Chicago? And then you're like, that's not an acceptable response. Can you talk about that? The conservative line on Chicago is that Chicago has really, really tough gun laws, and yet there are still so many murders there. Um, So gun control doesn't work. But if you actually unpack that a little more, there's a lot of different things wrong with that. One is that, like, Chicago is right next to Indiana, which has extremely loose gun laws. And in fact, a lot of Chicago's crime guns come from Indiana, which is not only proof that, like, one state's gun laws are not enough, but also proof that actually people who are tend to use guns in illegal ways— actually do pay attention to gun laws, that Indiana is a better place to traffic your guns from, in part because of the looser laws around background checks. But, like, the bigger problem here is that there's memes on Facebook that are shared that if you took out Chicago and Baltimore from America's gun violence total, then America would go from, like, one of the, you know, highest gun murder rates in the world to one of the lowest. This is just a lie. But it is a lie that's about race. It's about, oh, if it weren't for black Americans, magically we wouldn't have a murder problem in America. And actually, you can take out the top 130 cities where there's the most concentration of gun violence, and that's about half the murders in the United States. And you still have the other half that are happening, like, one murder at a time in tiny towns um, that may not have the, as high murder rates as some of these big cities, but actually that's a toll of murder too. That rare rural murder one at a time every couple of years is also contributing to why we have one of the highest murder rates looking at other countries. So how does the prevalence of gun violence and then also our lack of empathy in America compare to other industrialized countries? That's a good question. I'm not sure there are surveys of opinions in other countries on that. But I think what has really struck me is that all of our comparisons um, with, you know, are with Europe or Japan or other highly industrialized nations. And we say, how are our rates of compliance so much higher than theirs? But what we don't focus on is that if you actually look at the burden of gun violence, like overall uh, gun murder rates are something like 25 times higher than other developed, industrialized, like progressive nations. But if you look at the neighborhoods where it's most clustered, like we did an analysis looking at every gun homicide across the United States in 2015, and we found that actually a quarter of those are happening in like tiny neighborhood census tracts, like that only represent 1.5% of the people. And in those places, the gun homicide rate is like 400 times higher than people in other developed nations. And those are neighborhoods that have incredibly high levels of poverty, low levels of education, uh, like high levels of, of unemployment. So there's, there's this way and we're like, we're so rich and like we're doing so well. How could we possibly have these murder rates? But like the places where our murder rates are the highest are places where there's intense poverty and where the police are just not solving murders. So in fact, 
we don't have a country in which everyone has sort of an equal access to having the their murder of someone they loved solved or equal poverty. Like these are places that are broken in fundamental ways in the relationship between the people who live there and the state that's supposed to protect them. And then we're like, oh, but other developed nations are doing so well in this. And it's more complicated than that. It sounds almost like the story of gun violence based on what you're saying is the story of inequality in America. I think that's absolutely true. But it's important not just to say, oh, it's just poverty, because if you look broadly at countries and their murder rates, like even very poor, some very poor countries don't necessarily have our murder rates. I think the really important thing is understanding policing and how much you as a community can trust the police um, and how well the police are doing and actually holding people accountable for violence. If you look at the places that have the highest murder rates, gun murder rates in America, they're places where police just aren't solving murders. They aren't solving shootings to the, in the same way that they solve them in other places. So I think the sort of big critique here is you have to understand like state violence and state failure in America, not just the access to guns. But we also in the U.S. have a gun culture, which is kind of unique to us, where like people go to gun shows and it's like a cool thing. It's like a hobby you can have. How does that play into this? Is that an element? Well, I mean, that's totally an element of like, so why do we have so many guns? Like easy estimates, like at least 300 million estimates that go from like 265 million guns to like four, more than 400 million guns. So like more than one gun for every adult. And like, yeah, those guns aren't distributed equally. It turns out that like 3% of American adults own half of the country guns. And everyone was like, how can Stephen Paddock have like 40 guns in his possession? But it turns out there's like 11 million people in America, those like cluster of the people who own the most guns, who own an average of 17 each, that that's actually pretty normal. Like if you want to say how, what couldn't we just flag somebody who has 40 guns? Well, it'd be like millions of people probably. And it's hard, especially like I wasn't, didn't come from gun culture. I came from Connecticut. My mom wouldn't let me play with toy guns, right? Uh -huh. Like it was like really anti-gun. <laughs> and then I started covering this beat and I was like, well, I don't want to be a New York City idiot. Like, let me try to sort of suspend my personal feelings about guns, which did not start out very positive. And like, probably even still now, if it was just up to me, like I'm still not part of the gun culture, right. I, like understand it. And it's just like so much less Wild Westy than people think. Like I went to this town in Colorado where Everybody is supposed to own a gun by um, local statute, which they passed after Sandy Hook. They were like, we're going to mandate that everybody own a gun. And you just like, you wouldn't know that walking through, that like gun culture is actually a lot more subtle and chill. But like when journalists come, they like always take a picture of the gun and like take a picture of you like shooting the gun. And like, I think Americans who don't live in places where gun ownership is common, like think it's a lot scarier and more aggressive than it is. Mm hmm. So going back to mass shootings for a second, does it feel, from the outside perspective, when watching the news, when watching late night TV, for example, um, comedians are always talking about how we're having the same conversations over and over and over again. As a reporter, how do you feel about that? Do you think there's truth to that? Um, is it frustrating? And basically, how does it make you feel? I mean, it's just, it's really frustrating to rewrite the same articles over and over again. And it's especially frustrating because the conversation is so self-righteous and so sort of assumes that we know the answers. And just there's this really simple reason, like there's this one really bad organization that's stopping us from doing the right thing, or that Republicans are just cowards. Like, we totally got this. And yet the whole basis of the conversation is deeply flawed. Like we're having a conversation over and over again how to solve the rarest kind of like violence in America, the kind that everyone gets upset about because it could conceivably be then, and like ignoring over and over again the majority of the victims. And what's really frustrating is like the narrative that like nothing is happening and that nothing can happen is also false. 
there are gun laws that are advancing on the state level. There is progress being made there. There are people rethinking the framings of this. And there's also a lot of progress that happens in individual cities. Like gun violence is such a local problem and so much of it is about mayors and prosecutors and police. It's about criminal justice reform. It's about social service work on the ground. It's about communities deciding for themselves how to become safer. And so there's this way in which, you know, I sit like lots of reporters on panels of journalists, and they're usually older white people having the same conversation about guns that they've been having since the 90s. That's the politicians who define this discussion. That's a lot of the reporters. And it's like, let's get the voices of the people who are most affected here. And it turns out that there is better news there sometimes, that progress is actually more possible, that like we, t- we treat gun violence like it's one road, and there's like one guy with a gun standing in it, and we've been stuck there. And in fact, like people are climbing this mountain from all directions, and their work is totally being Raised. So you you do report on specifically gun policy and the far right. And is, I mean, is there not like a massive lobbying effort from the NRA? Like, is that also something we should just step away from for a moment? Because that does feel like insurmountably, I mean, coming from someone who is pro-gun control, um, that does feel like something that is kind of unbeatably big. Well, so this is the question, right? Like, Gun control is valuable, and tougher gun laws are more valuable than the super watered-down ones that we've passed in the past. And so your question is, okay, what does it take to actually change that? How long does it take to change that? And, like, what gun control groups, like Every Time for Gun Safety, Moms Demand Action, the advocates who do that work are fighting what they understand is a long campaign, a campaign to try to not just change laws very slowly, but to change America's gun culture, to, like, create a counterweight of people who are really upset at the permissiveness of guns in America. And, like, that's going to be a long battle. And it's really hard. And it's hard not just because the NRA is a super savvy organization and not because they pay politicians, but because they've been fighting this fight and they're very organized. That You have to think about the NRA not just as an organization with a lot of money, but an organization, like, understands how democracy works and, like, plays hardball, like, Mm -hmm. on the ground Mm -hmm. and, like, has activists. There was a great uh, Pew survey that asked people how likely they were to take a couple different kinds of actions after a mass shooting, and pro-gun men were more likely to take action than, like, anybody else. So, you know, the reason that the NRA keeps winning is a lot because they have the activists who are there on the ground. So if you don't like that, like, are you on the ground? Are you making those phone calls? Are you showing up in state legislative offices? Like, that's the fight. And so, yeah, that's a really hard fight. And you have to say that's a long one. But it's also really dangerous to say that's the only fight. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, my God, like, we can't pass gun control laws in Congress. Like, there's nothing we can do about this. And that's just like such a narrow idea of like what politics are to push so much weight on Washington. And yeah, there's a lot of like well-funded groups and like members of Congress who like have something to benefit from having that fight and framing it as this is outrageous. But it's not just the, like if you care about saving lives, that's not the only thing. Can you just go over maybe like two or just a few laws that have been enacted that you consider big wins at the local or state level that you know, just to share some positive news with our listeners. Yeah. So I think one of the kinds of laws that people are most excited about, and like I spoke to Nicole Hockley, who's a a mom of a kid who was killed at Sandy Hook. And the thing that she thinks is most brilliant is this thing called extreme risk protection orders or gun violence protection orders. And this is like a totally different kind of gun law than a lot of the ones we've seen in the past, which are like banning guns or like restricting big categories of guns. And the idea here is that 
like the transition of someone from being like a totally responsible fine gun owner to somebody who's like extremely high risk and likely to hurt themselves and others happens really fast. And it doesn't happen in ways that like law is able to see, right? Like that they're going to become really dangerous to themselves and other people far before they're going to do something that actually would you know, hit the legal bar for them to be prohibited from owning a gun. And so the idea is, what if police officers and family members were able to petition a court and say, listen, I know my son or my husband is really in a dangerous place. I'm worried that he might hurt himself. I'm worried he might hurt other people. Will you approve that he has to have his guns taken away temporarily? And this is something that could help with suicide and with mass shootings and with domestic violence. It passed in California after the Ila Vista shooting because the parents uh, of Elliot Roger like tried to stop him and weren't able to. And this is another tool. And 20 states now are working on this at the state level. It's advancing. It's like a, a nationwide campaign happening at the state level. And people are really excited about it. Like this is something that could make a real difference. And it's just a totally different framing of it. When we were talking about the NRA, one of the things that they've been able to do is for 20 years kind of stifle gun research. And that has been the case that we haven't had a substantive amount of gun research coming from the CDC or the NIH. What impact does that have on gun reform and the gun control debate, if any? This is another one of those stories where, like, something really bad is going on, but also the story is a lot more complicated than it looks at first or that complicated that Democrats will tell you. Um, Yes, in 1996, as the CDC was sort of really ramping up gun violence research, doing a lot of public health studies, including one that concluded it was actually a lot more dangerous to have a gun in your home. You were more likely to have that gun used against you than to use it to protect you. Um, Republicans in Congress tried to crack down, and they didn't exactly outlaw gun violence prevention research. They just said, you know, you can't do any research at CDC that advocates or promotes gun control. Now, this was like a totally redundant idea because actually— Nobody doing federal research can advocate for a particular political position, but it succeeded in really scaring the CDC off from doing this for a long time. And yeah, if you look overall at gun violence prevention research, like it is a totally underfunded field compared with a lot of other things in the public health realm. So that's really problematic. But one thing that actually isn't talked about is that the Justice Department was never blocked from doing gun violence prevention research. And actually, some of the researchers that were funded by CDC shifted over and got some funding from the Justice Department. And what the Justice Department was working on was not mass shootings or not sort of determining like how dangerous guns are. They were looking at the cities that had the highest numbers of shootings. They were looking at basically gun violence in communities of color and what can be done. And they made huge progress in finding more effective ways that were not as punitive, that were more collaborative, um, that actually worked to reduce shootings like by 63% um, or 20 or 40% in very short periods of time. So there's this way in which, like, yes, the NRA's war on data is very real and very problematic. But there are other ways that if you wanted to just do the work and not fight over the symbolism of the work, you could just put more money in the Justice Department. Would it matter? Justice Department could work with public health researchers too. And so there's this way in which like the culture war over guns is actively getting in the way of just like doing the work and making people safer. So in response to Las Vegas, uh, there were a couple of like legislative responses. One was basically the Republicans said that they were not going to yet move forward with the silencer bill and then another bill that would have made it easier to use concealed carry weapons in another state or jurisdiction that has tighter restrictions on them. So they're not moving forward with those for now. But the legislation that the NRA is considering possibly supporting is on bump stocks. Can you talk about that and what that means? 
Yeah. So first, like, concealed carry reciprocity is a boring name, but it is so important. Like, this is the tourists can carry guns in the New York City subway law. That's it. It's like our local gun restrictions don't matter. If you have a license in another state, which has very different laws and a very different gun culture, they can bring their guns to protect them in big, bad New York. Um, it really sends terror straight to my heart. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, right. That one, like, there's a lot of uh, the gun control debate that's very culture worry. Like, yeah. this one is like something like this, this will affect you and your life. Like, pay attention to that uh, right. that legislation. But the bump stocks thing, it's like, like, we have to understand that, like, bump stocks were not, like, a sophisticated device used by, like, military target shooters. Like, this was a stupid range toy for people who made YouTube videos where they're like, oh, I can take my semi-automatic and make it something like an automatic but it, like, doesn't have accuracy. It's really hard to use. Like, it is just a toy. So the fact that everybody can agree that a toy that was made by, like, a handful of companies that had, like, no great value in the broader firearms industry, that, like, most people who even are gun enthusiasts had no idea existed, the fact that we can ban this is no great victory. Like, it was a dumb toy that probably should never have been legal in the first place. And if it ends up being restricted again, that's probably reasonable after it was used in a mass shooting. It has literally no purpose. But it's not really a big step forward. And, you know, the NRA is even on this one. It's saying we don't need new legislation. Uh, you know, the Obama Justice Department, like, fucked up how they defined this in the first place. And, like, this is an administrative change that should be made. In some ways, like, it is a step forward that anything is happening at all, yes. But, like, the stupidity and the the time, the smallness of the step is sort of hard to overstate. And finally, is there, like, one specific element of this conversation or debate that you're particularly interested in that you feel like is being underreported or that you want more information on or something? We never talk about policing when we talk about gun violence. Like, it's just astonishing. We've had, like, a gun violence conversation for the past five years, and we've had a conversation on, like, police violence and, like, police shootings. And those conversations, like, usually happen in parallel. Like, the week before Las Vegas, we were talking about the NFL protests, about protests about police violence. And Las Vegas happens, and, you know, We've totally moved away from it. It's totally different. Yeah. Like, those things are deeply connected, right? Like, fears of black Americans and their criminality, lies about black criminality are central to this debate, are central to the reason why people own guns, um, are central to why people want to protect the police, and they feed into, like, why police are armed. So there's this vicious cycle in which, like, police shootings, like, wider ownership of guns, and, like, the reason people own guns, like, they're all part of the same very dangerous cycle where people are afraid and buy more guns and nothing gets passed. And so it's so frustrating to look at, you know, Chicago People do not pay enough attention to Chicago. Like, the concerned trolls on the right who are making racist comments, like, they are not paying attention to Chicago. They are doing nothing, right? You uh -huh. can't give that credit. But, it, you know, Chicago's murder clearance rate is 20%. Like, one out of five murders in Chicago last year were solved. That is outrageous. Like, that should be a huge deal in terms of the number of people who are dying. And it's not. And what we see is that, you know, America as a whole has let Chicago and Baltimore has let some neighborhoods of color in America just deal with horrendous levels of violence. And now we see, now that mass shootings are spreading, those neighborhoods are being as used as an excuse while gun control is not possible. So you let Chicago deal with high levels of violence, and now we're come to the point where Chicago is being as used as an excuse that everybody has to be unsafe. And that itself is also a, a really troubling phenomenon. Weird. It's almost like America has a racism problem. Wow. It's almost like that. <laughs> almost. Definitely.
Now it's time for our weekly segment, How to Handle the Dicks, where we talk about how we're handling the dicks. And Lois is still with us. Thank you for putting up with us. <laughs> <laughs> this is the stupidest segment, so I want to tell you, you do not have to say anything smart. Great. <laughs> okay. Um, and in fact, please don't. And in fact, got it. <laughs> Please don't. Um, what, Prati, are you doing anything? I'm handling them in the worst way possible, which is that I'm moving. That's good, though. Which is, it's great to, like, Marie Kondo my shit. Like, I'm throwing out pretty much everything. I don't really have that much to begin with. I don't right, own and you, any in furniture. Fact, you are abandoning so, all of your furniture. I'm abandoning. Well, I don't own any furniture. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I can't really abandon it. But, like, now I'm, like, acquiring things. Like, I have to, like, buy a bunch of new stuff at once and— it's really bad for my anxiety because I'm bad at, at like, making those kinds of decisions because I'm just, like, wow, this is a terrible how to handle, guys. Please don't, like, follow <laughs> any of Like, don't do this to yourself. <laughs> don't ever just, like, don't move. Just don't move. Yeah, stay where you are. <laughs> just never move. <laughs> um, Lois, has, has your life, like, are you doing anything that you find to be um, spiritually fulfilling? Wow. <laughs> Um, mm. That's like a really hard question. I mean, I think they know. No, like no, definitely yeah. not. Yeah, I've like started using a lot of turmeric because that's like a super spice. It's a it's a great spice. I know, and I, I just love like it. I'm not a chef in general, so I don't use like spices. Yeah, and I'm really trying to use spices. That's great. Wait, there is like one thing in my life that really brings me joy, and it's this perfume newsletter, the Dry Down. Wow. Do you guys, oh guys, it's so good. So it's like it's um, Rachel Simon, Helena Fitzgerald writing about like their feelings I've about smells. It's I so good. And so like sometimes I do like read through and then I will buy like $1.50 tiny, tiny perfume samples of like really weird things. And it's so wonderful. Like it's just so great to just be like, ah, like one sense that I like totally ignore because I live in New York and everything smells That's like garbage. That's a like, really good point. It's so – and like their writing is amazing and like perfume is so weird and the people who are into it are so weird. It's great. I don't wear perfume because when I was in college, my boyfriend at the time, who is also my boyfriend at this time, um, <laughs> I was wearing perfume and he was, and he told me that he was allergic to perfume, so I had to stop. But he wasn't. He was lying because he just didn't like it. What? So I like, I just like have like kind of a sensitive spot about that. But it does sound good. I wish I could participate. I, I mean, he's just lying. He, I mean, he's all, I mean, I just he just hated it. So it was like his way of being like, I hate this. What thing was you're the doing. scent? Yeah, what was it? It's like rose. Rose. Fancy thing. What's up? What you ha- you'll have to tell me what it is so I can wear it around Brad from now on. I know he would amazing. never remember. <laughs> be, I'd be like Brad. How do I smell? And he'd be like, great. And I'd be like, Brad, why are you lying to me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Lois, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a great conversation. You're so reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) No one has ever told me that before. You're so not insane. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for asking questions. Thanks so much to our guest, Lois Beckett, and thanks for listening to Big Time Dicks. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mondana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Jamie Colazzo. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. 
We'll see you next Tuesday, and who knows what the world will look like then.